Midterm elections are coming. Did you know that? Did you know it? Great. No anarchy starting in here. Good, good. Are you registered to vote? Mm, okay. Well, next time I ask for an amen with the Bible, I better hear equal, equal thrust. Amen. If you're not, do you know how to get registered to vote? Do you know what day to vote? Do you know what you're voting for? Do you know who you're voting for? Do you know why you're voting? Do you know what the candidates believe that you are you're voting for? Do you know what Proclamation 4.3-823-4, F- if you vote A or B, do you know what that means? You see, there is an extent when it comes to our voter literacy. That is what we know about what we're voting for that really has a lot to do with, well, our ability to vote. Right? I mean, you have to know a certain amount and have confidence in, in what you're about to do, what you're about to partake in, for it to be helpful, fruitful, and for you to have confidence that you're doing what you know you ought to be accomplishing. But there is a much more crucial area of literacy in our lives uh, that most Christians significantly lack, and it has nothing to do with voting, it has nothing to do with politics, it has nothing to do with uh, red or blue. The kind of literacy that I'm talking about is your biblical literacy. You see, when it comes to our biblical literacy, as a matter of fact, Christians uh, across the spectrum have a, have a lack of biblical literacy, and it hinders our ability to discern God's will and to trust in his promises. Right? It's hard to trust something, and it's hard to know uh, about God and his promises when we aren't literate in his promises. We don't, we don't know them. And so we have people who claim the faith of Christianity. We have people who, who say that they believe in God, but, but they, they don't follow God because they know nothing about who God is and his promises, at least not enough to, to truly live that way. But there is another area, another more specific area of our biblical literacy that, that even students of the Bible lack in. Even, even people who have been reading the Bible for years, there's a particular area that's of utmost importance when it comes to our biblical literacy. And that particular area of biblical literacy is what we would call a predictive prophecy. Right? And it's important, because predictive prophecy is important uh, regardless of what you know, denomination you grew up in, what, uh, where you grew up, and what you believe about the idea of future events. It uh, doesn't diminish the reality that you must understand that God has given us the truths about future events so that we could have trust and faith in what we have right now in the truth of God's word. And you might ask, what is predictive prophecy? Well, predictive prophecy is simply this. It's a message recorded in, in Scripture, conveyed by a person, a messenger, usually in Scripture a prophet, right, who gives a message to a group of people concerning future events. And this message was given to specific people because it was supposed to accomplish a particular response. Right? That's what predictive prophecy is. Future events foretold by someone, a mouthpiece of God in Scripture, that tells us about something that's coming in, with the expectation that the response to that is a particular thing. Right? Christ is coming back. That should elicit a particular response in our lives today. We're, we'll jump into, as we've even read in Matthew 1, uh, 12 through 17, there are p- particular people in this genealogy who were given a predictive prophecy about things to come. And that not only changed how they live today, but when that event neared, it elicited a specific response for them to walk in a particular way because of that prophecy that they were preparing for and and waiting for, particularly in the life of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, us concerning 
Christ. But as we look at the text this morning, you can turn there in Matthew 1, 12 through 17. We need to understand that predictive prophecy, it is about historical events for you and I. They help us, and they don't hinder us. Now, they hinder us if we don't understand them, because we look at them and we have question marks. What, what do you mean goat? What do you mean ram? What is a horn? Why is that horn broken? Uh, you know, what, what, is, what is a dragon, and what does the woman have to do with, with all of these things? Sure, yes. I mean, if you don't understand apocalyptic literature, that, that's one thing. Uh, but to not understand predictive prophecy hinders you when it comes to the confidence that you have in the veracity or the truthfulness of Scripture. The need for us to trust in predictive prophecy and to look at predictive prophecy in Scripture, uh, to trust Scripture and to help us understand that God's Word is really the final arbiter to the truth. That is, when I look at Scripture, and as we will look to the Old Testament, even into the uh, intertestamental period of Scripture, you're going to see God saying, this is the truth about something that hasn't happened yet, and I'm the one who created this historical event, and I'm the one who fulfilled it, and you must trust in that, even hundreds of years before it happened. See, that's the veracity of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture. We have laid before us in God's Word, but we have to understand about God's truth and about predictive prophecy for us to understand we can trust God's word no matter, no matter what. Not concerning things in the past. The Bible's not a history book. But the things about past, present, and future. And as a matter of fact, what that ought to do, that's what it does in the characters of Scripture, especially in the genealogy, is it should embolden your faith. Right? It should help you say, I trust everything the Bible says about the past, the present, and the future because it's been truthful and honest and integrous in everything that it said about the past, the present. And even though I don't see the future coming, I've seen the Bible over and over and over again clarify things that he could have never known. The writers could have never known apart from divinely inspired prophetic writing. I know if this is your first time here, you're like, whew, all right, here we go. Names I don't understand and predictive prophecy that I know nothing about. Good. Well, I'm glad you're here. Because what we're doing is we're finishing up a sermon series. I mean, this is the final sermon in the sermon series, People and Promises. And it's all about predictive prophecy because you, as you look at these names and we go all the way from Abraham all the way to Christ, it's chock full of predictive prophecy. And as a matter of fact, Matthew, the, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, is depending on it that people understand the ideas of predictive prophecy throughout the names. Because when we look at the Davidic covenant, we have to say, okay, there's a predictive prophecy that someone's going to come fulfill that covenant. When we look at the life of Abraham in this genealogy, well, we don't have, they're in exile, they don't have the land. So there's a predictive prophecy that someday I'm going to have the land, I'm going to have the throne, and someone's going to sit upon it, and they're going to do it forever. All signs of predictive prophecy that has to be fulfilled in the future. And the Bible is foretelling on it. So when we look at these names, you have to understand that in the recesses of their mind, they all, they're all living with eager expectation for things that haven't happened yet because God told them it was going to happen. Now, I hope you see where that comes into our life because there are so many things uh, when it comes to our eschatological understanding of Scripture that has not happened yet. But if you live so long like I did to say, you know what, I'm just going to live where the Bible says today, but I'm not really going to pay attention to what it says about the future. Well, you're not going to be able to live for the Lord today. Because so much about what you and I hope in and have confidence in isn't about what's here, it's about what's there. And it's about how we're living right now in light of what is coming. It's the same con context that we jump into Scripture today. Because as we finish up this series, we're going to look at some names of people who understood the importance of predictive prophecy. Because where they were standing and where they were living in that moment wasn't such a great place. As a matter of fact, as we pick up in, in the historical place, last week we talked about 
Babylon taking over the southern kingdom and, and putting them into exile. As a matter of fact, they had three different deportations that culminated in 586 B.C. Uh, at the destruction of, of Judah in the temple. So 586 B.C., you have Judah completely eradicated other than the poorest of the poor who, who stayed behind. They deported everyone else to, to Babylon in 586 B.C., and they spent decades in captivity to Babylon. But did you know something? That may be news to you, but it wasn't news to Judah. And here's why. Because Jeremiah 25, jot that down. Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied between 626 and 587 B.C. Remember, they were deported for the third time, the final time, the rest of those who were deported in 586 B.C. So regardless of when Jeremiah's prophecy was foretold, it was before the complete exile of Judah. Now pay attention to exactly what Jeremiah says about this deportation. He said, this whole land, that is Judah, it will become a ruin and a waste. And these nations, right, the, the people of Judah, will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Period. Did you see that? There was a predictive prophecy already before. And, and even if, if you say, okay, well, what if he prophesied, I don't know, the day before he died in 587? He still wouldn't have known 70 years of Captivity to Babylon. He wouldn't have known it. But even if you put it right back in the middle, somewhere around 600 BC, Jeremiah prophesied about the 70 year exile of Judah. I mean, this would have been 50, 60 years before the event ever even happened. See, that's, that's predictive prophecy. And Judah knew this. They read this and say, I remember when Jeremiah said, Babylon's coming to get us and they're going to have us for 70 years. But here's the news, verse 12, and they lived in light of this news. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nations, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Far from Judah believing that God had given up on them, Judah looked at this text, Judah, the tribe of Judah, looked at the text and said, God is doing something. And he's doing something now, and it may not be super comfortable, and we are exiled because of our sin and our iniquity, but God is going to come redeem what has been broken. As a matter of fact, that continues to be the case when we look at Isaiah the prophet, who also prophesied around 740 and 686 B.C., right, 100 years before the particular prophecy I'm about to read. What we see is that God was doing something, and he was trying to let, I shouldn't say trying, he was accomplishing the task of letting Judah know what was going to happen before it happened so that they could respond appropriately to God. Listen to this prophecy. Jot this down. Isaiah 44, 28. Isaiah 44, 28. This is, what, this is what Isaiah says as a mouthpiece of the Lord, predictive prophecy. He says this, God who says of Cyrus, this is Cyrus too, king of Persia. Now, remember, during the time of Isaiah, who was in charge? Babylon. Babylon was in charge. Persia was insignificant, not even on the world scene. And yet you have Isaiah prophesying up to 200 years before, 100, 150 years before Cyrus was ever born, says this, that King Cyrus, who conquered Babylon, you need to remember later, after five, 586, uh, 70 year, 40 years after 586, somewhere around late 400 BC, and he says this about Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, God says. He's not even a, he's not even a, a Jew, he's not even an Israelite, he's not even a believer, but he's going to be my shepherd, God says, he's going to fulfill my purposes. And this is what Cyrus is going to say of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. So a hundred years before Cyrus is even born, God had put a predictive prophecy before Judah and said, don't you worry. After 70 years of captivity, Babylon is going to be, remember, we saw that in Jeremiah, Babylon will be 
punished. They were punished. Shortly after that, when you have the Persian king Cyrus, the second who came in and completely obliterated Babylon, and then that's when you have the, the kingdom rise of a Persia in Medo-Persia at the same time. So even in history, we look back at the historical context and we say, that actually literally happened. I have it in the history books. You can read secular history books. This is exactly what happened. Why? Because God said, this is what I'm going to do. This is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. And he's going to allow Judah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. They knew that because it was predictive prophecy. Although it hadn't happened yet, they lived, that is, Judah lived in light of the future culmination of these promises of God. And so, therefore, you may know a lot about Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah because you understand the histories of the Old Testament and how Zerubbabel went back shortly after that in 538 B.C. Because he had an understanding of that predictive prophecy, he understood, this is what I'm going to do. I understand what the word said. It's foretold this a hundred and something years before it happened. And here I am walking in it because I read God's word and I understand this is what it says. So I'm going to live this way. And Zerubbabel, being in our genealogy, was a Judahite. Right? He was someone who was an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so not only does he find himself in the uh, predictive uh, prophecy of Scripture, he finds himself right in the line of the Davidic covenant. And so obviously he understands that his responsibility in this whole thing, although he may not know it explicitly, he understands, I am a follower of God. I must do what the Bible says. So he does it. He returned in 538 uh, B.C., because he understood what the Bible said, and he became the governor of Judah, and he built God's temple, right? which you, you don't have to know Scripture too in detail to understand that there are certain people who built the temple. You have Solomon who built the temple. He was a Judite, right? He was, a, he was an heir of the Davidic covenant. So you have Zerubbabel, who is a Judite, who built the temple. Then we have Christ, who is a Judite, right? who came, and he says, I am the temple. You tear this temple down. In three days, I will raise it up. Okay. So you can already see, wow, there is so much predictive prophecy and being fulfilled even in the midst of what's reading the very text that we see in front of us. And all you have to do is say, this is what the Bible says. And I understand as a Christian, I'm a part of this. And as I'm a part of this, I've got to learn how do I apply God's commands of Scripture to my life. And, of course, we're in the Old Testament, so these things have passed, so we have to wait for our turn later on in the sermon. But what you have to see is it was very clear what must have happened, what needed to happen. There were not a lot of, uh, there were not a lot of people in the tribe of Judah who were sitting there on their thumbs saying, I wonder what to do. I wonder what we're supposed to do. I know the Bible says that Babylon would have us for 70 years, and I know that then after that, Persia was going to take over and beat up Babylon, and they're going to be in control, and then Cyrus is going to let us go back to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. Go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple, right? I mean, it was very clear what the application of those predictive prophecies gave to those people of God who understood there's really no choice here. I got to do what the Bible's telling me to do. Now, that also gave Ezra and Nehemiah later, 458 B.C., 444 B.C., under another king of Persia. It gave them faith and confidence to go back and Ezra, who... Uh, reformed the worship in Israel. They had the temple, but it wasn't functioning all the ways that it ought to have. So he went back as a Levite, Ezra, a Levite. He went and restored worship in Israel because that's what Levites did. You see what I'm saying? All that they did was what they knew to do because the Bible had already given them the clarity to say, I know what to do because this is who I am. Right? And I say all this, and I don't want to hold off before I get there, but this is why as Christians, 
We all spend so much time saying, I don't know what God's word is telling me to do. I don't know what God's word is telling me to do. But reality, it tells us exactly what to do. So many of us just lack the doing of scripture. So we even see Ezra, who as a Levite goes and he reforms the worship there. Uh, they commission the temple and it is functioning. And then Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall and get the city functioning the way that it ought to. Now, why do I say all this? Simply because this, all of these men knew God's word said that the temple is going to be rebuilt. The wall was going to be rebuilt. Worship would be restored. And they used God's word to help them understand that. And really all it did to them is this, it they allowed God's promises to illuminate God's will for them. That's all they did. They allowed God's word and his promises to illuminate the will of God for them. And that's what I want you to put on point number one on your outline. You need to let God's promises illuminate God's will for you. That is, Scripture is going to tell you most everything you need to do. Right? He's not telling you if you need to go buy a donut tomorrow. Right? But he does tell you in the way that you eat, you ought to do it for him. So if you can't eat a donut for the Lord because you think it's sinful, then you don't do it. You see the point here. What you must do is you need to understand that you have to let God's promises illuminate God's will for you. So many of us pray for God's will and we want God's will, but the problem, reason we don't believe that we have an understanding of God's will in our own personal life is because you don't know God's promises. Right? You simply just don't know what God's word says fundamentally about what it means to be a Christian. And so you live on the peripheries of the Christian faith because you have yet to step into the middle of God's promises and say, here's what the word says. This is just what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do that. Because what I want you to see is it isn't because of lack of conflict or lack of discouragement or, or lack of excuses uh, that Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel uh, didn't do the plan of God. I mean, there was plenty of roadblocks in the life of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to not do what God wanted. There was plenty. As a matter of fact, I'll turn you to one. Flip to Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4. I'm not hearing many Bibles flipping. Here we go. There we go. All right, Nehemiah 4. All right. If we, get, we want to understand the promises of God and we want them to illuminate, we've got to open it up. We've got to read it. So we're here, we're sitting in Nehemiah 4 because what I want you to see is letting God's promises illuminate God's will for you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have conflict. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have hurdles. It doesn't mean you're not going to have barriers. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to love what you're doing. Okay, because we look back at people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and we're like, whoa. Some faithful people, right? I mean, I wish I could have enough faith to leave where I was growing up for the last eight decades and go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and reorder, restore worship at its rightful place. Like, I just, I love how faithful they were, and it just seems so good. And God had to give them this extra special level of something, of power to go do that. Uh, because I don't know. Again, I just feel like God took away all of the problems and all of their hurdles and all of their struggles so they could go do that. Absolutely not. Right? I'll show you. Nehemiah 4. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3, and then we'll skip down to verse 7. 1 through 3. Now, they're doing this. The work is starting on, on the wall, and the temple has, has almost been completed at this point. And this is what happens. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, so we're talking about Samarians, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what are they building over there? If foxes go up on it, he will break down their stone walls. 
Hear, O God, for we are despised. They were just indignant, angry that, that, God, that these Jews would be there doing what God wanted. Verse 7, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, I mean, we're getting that's a pretty big group of people who don't want you to be doing what you're doing. They're all together, and here's, here's what they say. They heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, and they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see, God had promised that this was going to happen, and God didn't promise that and say, I'm also not going to give you any conflict. I'm not going to give you any hurdles. I'm not going to give you any problems or conflict. He says, actually, as a matter of fact, there will be plenty of that as well. But in light of my promises and in light of the conflict that you're going to receive, I will still be faithful to accomplish and to complete my will. And so when we look at seeing God's promises and illuminating God's will for you, it doesn't mean that I'm going to do God's will in as much as I don't have struggle in my life or in as much as I don't have issues going on in my life or I'm going to do God's will until things start getting hard and then I'm going to set his will down and I'm going to go back to my own way of doing things. It's simply this. God's promises illuminated through his word will tell you God's will for you and you just walk in them. You leave the practical things to the practical things. Right? You do what you're told. Leave the rest to God. Right. Let the chips fall where they may. You're going to do what you're going to do because it's what the Bible teaches about God's promises, and you're going to allow God to take care of the practical things. Too many times we want to take care of the practical things, and which leads us not to do the things God wants us to do. We say things like, well, but what about this? But what about this? And then we just say, what about this? Right. We take care of this. We let, we let God's word illuminate his will for us, and we just do it. Leave the practical things to God. And you can have confidence in, in God's will, even, even amidst the struggle, even in the midst of the, the conflict. We just know, listen, I would rather set my life up on the foundation of the promises of God than on my feeble foundation, where if a fox does jump on my foundation, it will crumble to pieces. And we got to make sure that we understand that. Like, God's promises are so much more faithful and steady and sure than anything you could build on your own. And you must look at God's word to illuminate that promise to you, or you're going to be failing over and over and over and over again. Questions. Interesting questions. When it comes to God's will and, and versus how we often live, you ask the question, uh, you know, if we look at the Bible, not as a magic eight ball, but as truly for what it is, it tells me exactly what I need to be doing in my life. Uh, and you get home and you're angry with your spouse and you ask yourself the question, man, I know this doesn't have to do with their sin. It has to do with mine. I'm just mad. Should I create unnecessary conflict with my spouse today? And you look and you're like, well, no, not according to Ephesians 5 or, or Colossians 3. Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, husbands, it says you must live in an understanding way with your wife. So the Bible tells me, no, don't do that, right? I'm not going to go home and create unnecessary conflict because I'm angry, because I'm upset. It actually tells me you should consider others more significant than yourself. And what you should also do is be slow to anger. You're, you're the problem, not your spouse. Right? Even kids, teens in here. Right? Your parents ground you, and you're mad, you're angry. They ground you for something. You say, should I give my parents a piece of my mind? And you're looking through here, and you're like, no, uh, Honor your mother and father. <laughs> Can't do that. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's simple. right? When we just look at Scripture, we have a problem, and we say, God, illuminate your word to me that I can walk in your will. So much of your life is going to be like, well, that's, that's easy. Right? There, is hard, there are hard things to deal with. 
And there are things you got to dive deep into Scripture to, to seek the wisdom of God. But there are more things, so many things, very clear things. That it just says, this is what we do. And we allow, we allow the chips to fall where they may. But this is just what we do because we're Christians. Just like Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, this is just what we do. Judah said, we're going back because this is who we are. And this is what God says we do. We're just going to go do it. I'm just going to go do it. It doesn't just change what you do, right? And being a Christian does change what you do, doesn't it? I mean, you live the way you did before you were a Christian. You understand as a Christian, you have to live differently. Uh, but you don't just change what you do. You change how you do things. First Corinthians 10, it sums it up real well in verse 31. It says, so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But there is nothing outside the parameters of you doing for the Lord. There's nothing outside the parameters of God's will being active in your eating, in your chewing, in your drinking, and in your breathing. All of those things belong to the Lord, and there is a way in which we would do them, according to 1 Corinthians 10. Nothing outside the parameters of us following God's will and looking to his word to illuminate his will for us in all of those areas. doesn't mean everything's going to go well, does it? It really, I mean, it doesn't. There's no promise there that says, you know, if you do all these things perfectly to a T, that it's going to feel perfectly in your heart and in your mind. Because even we see in history, after the temple foundation was laid, there was a sense of loss and mourning. Did you know that? Right? After it was laid, you can flip to Ezra. Flip to Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, one of the history books there. Ezra chapter 3. Even after they did what, what God said, go do this. Go, go do these things. Look, look, what, look what they do. In verse 10, in chapter 3 of Ezra, it says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And on all the people shouted with great shouts, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house had been laid. But look at verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with loud voices when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted for joy, but there were also a lot of, of weeping in, in verse 13. And so there was this mixed emotions of, we did what God wanted us to do, but I sit here and I see it and I'm just mourning. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, is this all there is? Right? I mean, I, I did it. Are we done? I mean, this is, is, this what we're, is, this, is this how this is going to be? This doesn't look like how I want it. This doesn't even look like what God would want. But, but look at Haggai. Flip to Haggai real quick, back of the Old Testament. Because Haggai was prophesying during the time of Ezra. And so actually, as a matter of fact, Haggai the prophet is responding to this very issue in the life of Judah in the book of, of Ezra. Long way. Here we go. Haggai, chapter 2. Okay, in, in verse 3, here's what Haggai says. God said, here's what you need to say. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, obviously those people who were complaining because they saw the first temple. And they were like, that's, that's the temple. And they're seeing the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple foundation. And they're, and they're all mourning. And, and, this, and this is what uh, Haggai says. Who saw, who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. Be strong, declares the Lord. Like, listen, I'm still doing something. 
Let's skip to verse 6. God says, be strong, because I'm, I'm doing something. Here's something that's going to happen. God said, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. A little while, that's, that's, a, that's a statement of the future, right? There's coming a time in the future. I know with what you see now, it seems incomplete, seems insignificant, seems like uh, it should be better than this. But God says, no, 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 don't worry. For in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. Right? There's some predictive prophecy. Wherever they're sitting right now, they see that it's just not what we thought it was going to be. And God says, hold on. What's, what's coming? There's going to be a day where the, where the glory of this house will outshine the former glory. And in this place, I'm going to give peace. Right? Obviously, that's a foreshadowing to the coming of Christ. But they didn't see that. They just had to take God at his word saying, okay, God, I'm done complaining. I'm done crying. No more mourning. You told me. You told me. I, this. So now, for the rest of this time, going forward, Israel kept living forward. Right? They said, okay, this is what God's word says. I don't know what the application of that at the end of the day is. I just know that God said that he's going to make this better than it was in Solomon's temple. And I'm going to take God at his word. And I'm going to be faithful to the promise to do exactly what Haggai said. And it told me to be courageous, be strong. Because the Lord says that he's going to make all this stuff work out. And so what you're going to do is you're going to say, okay, whatever God's will says, I'm going to do it. I need to build a foundation. I'm going to build a foundation. Because a lot of you need to be building some foundations in your lives, in your marriages, in your children's lives. That's a whole nother conversation. But they just had to understand we have to live forward. we got to live looking to the future. Now, what we see, even in their lives, you get to the end of of Haggai, you got a couple of more prophets prophesying around that time, and then you get to this weird place in the Bible uh, that looks something like like this, okay, and it's, it's empty, really, right? There's nothing on either side. We know that as the intertestamental period, because what's important for you and I to know about the intertestamental period is God had told these faithful Judahites, these faithful Levites, these the, the southern kingdom, as they went back into the, the place that was taken from them, God said, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. I've illuminated my will to you to say, listen, I'm going to do something. And what you need to do is have faith and trust in my promises. And he gave them specific insight to the future, didn't he? He says, I'm going to make the latter glory of this greater than the former. Say it, former. Say that, former. Former? Former. There we go. Are we awake? All right. Former glory. So that's, isn't that a, that's pretty specific, isn't it? This is going to be better than it was before. That's a specific promise to insights to the future. And God does that in his word. And so many times you and I, if we're not careful, we miss that when we look at scripture. And we even are reading hundreds of years ago in Haggai. And it was still talking to us because there's some, still some things that happened that still haven't happened yet. They haven't. There are, there's not peace on the temple. There's not peace there where God had laid the foundation. And it's coming. And so you see, you and I, we forget about it, and we don't live for it, and we don't live looking forward to the promises of God, and they had the same struggle. But yet, they lived in a 400-year span of what people would call silence, the silence of the Lord. He didn't speak for 400 years in the intertestamental period. 
I object to that, and I believe that's completely wrong, but even scholars would say there was 400 years in between the Old and New Testament that we don't hear from God. But if you believe in predictive prophecy and you trust in the fact that God's word says what it says, you would say, eh, he did speak. He spoke specific future events of the intertestamental period, but he didn't do it during the time of the intertestamental period. He did it 200 years before in the book of Daniel. Look at Daniel. Go to Daniel. Daniel was prophesying in 605 to 535 B.C. And you know the intertestamental period was somewhere in the early 3rd century. Uh, 333 B.C. is a big figure you all know. So that's a 330, 350, 380, 400 B.C. was prime period. And now you have this prophet Daniel who prophesied 200 years before that about specific things that would happen during this time of silence where God didn't say anything. Baloney. God said a lot. Let's look at Daniel. It's important for you to see that God is, is doing something. And, and God is speaking even when you think God is silent. Because here you go, you're in an intertestamental period. Uh, you have Israel still in the intertestamental period waiting for these promises that haven't been fulfilled. They're not hearing God speaking through current prophets. But there's something that happens in Daniel chapter 8. He says, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So he had another dream, and now he's having another one. And he saw in the vision, uh, he was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I was in the vision, and okay, I raised my eyes, verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, there was a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was one who could rescue. There is no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And I was, as I was considering this, behold, a male goat. So now we have a ram, and now we have a male goat that came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. I mean, this is a pretty big goat, okay? I mean, this is a legit goat. Got some wings, some torpedoes, some jets, something. And he's not touching the ground. Hey, he's a big deal. And he's not touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. I mean, it was a pretty big horn. Horn uh, in prophetic language, even in the Old Testament, is a sign of power, authority. And horns was often signified a nation. So there was a, there's a strong nation here, and that's what it will tell you in a moment. And here's what he said. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran to him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. So this goat completely obliterated this ram, completely, so that the ram had no power Whatsoever, And he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Now, you may be one of those who say, okay, I don't know what that means. I mean, there's a lot of animals. There's a lot of, a lot of things happening. Not so sure what to do with, with that. But, but don't worry, because... God doesn't leave you without answers. Right? He actually explains who these people were. Look at, look at verse 20. Go down to verse 20. Verse 20. He says this. I'm going to explain this dream. He says, verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media 
and Persia, right? These were two kingdoms that became known as one kingdom, Medo-Persia, right? You, you probably know, you probably learned about Medo-Persia. And he's saying this one, right, this ram is, is one kingdom, Medo-Persia. And he's like, and that goat, remember, it had two horns. One was higher than the other because Persia took over Media, became Medo-Persia. So he had that one horn. It was a lot bigger, a lot more powerful. Uh, and they were, they were doing some stuff where they were. And, and this is what it says. As for the ram... Or as for the goat, sorry, in verse 21, is the king of Greece. Interesting. Greece ain't even doing anything during the time of Daniel. But we're about to see that this goat, right, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, right, this goat is about to get over there and he's about to do some work on that ram. And he's going to tear him apart and he's going to completely eradicate him. Now, a lot of you are sitting here like, man, that sounds like a blight of Bible mumbo jumbo. Let me give you the actual history lesson for you. That the Bible talked about 200 years before the actual events happened. Babylon. Who took over Babylon? Persia. Persia took over Media. You had Medo-Persia. Okay, they reigned for a while. That's where Ezra and Nehemiah got to go back and rebuild the, the this walls and the temple and all those good things. And then who took over Persia? Greece. Who took over Persia at Greece? Alexander the Great. I even love that. It said literally a great ruler. The Bible named him. We didn't name him. I call him Alex. The Bible calls him Alexander the Great. Right. Alexander the Great, he came and he obliterated Medo-Persia. And he took over and he was exceedingly great. But then you remember something historically about the reign of Alexander the Great, don't you? Let's see. Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8. And when the goat became exceedingly great and he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, we understand that Alexander the Great took over the world in a decade. I mean, it was the fastest ruling ever. I mean, he went and he just basically took all of the known world 10 years he made it his. He was like 20-something years old. By the time he's 33 years old, he dies. He has two sons. They both get murdered. And so if you understand history, you know what happens after this. His kingdom, this mighty kingdom of Greece, that horn was broken. He died. In his place came four smaller horns. The Greece empire was split into four smaller empires that did not, as the scripture says, have the same power. Four horns. Two that you'll see uh, here on the outline that I have for you. Here we go. Right there. There's two of them that you're going to see talking about in scripture a lot because if you notice, uh, you have the... Uh, Ptolemaic Empire, which was one of the generals of uh, Alexander the Great. And then you have the Seleucid Empire up here. And you know who's in the middle of these two? Who's, where is that? It's Jerusalem, isn't it? So you see these two empires from the Greek split of the, other ki- of the two kingdoms that are in the, what we would say the east, are now splitting territory right in the middle of Jerusalem. So you see these two in a lot of intertestamental literature. And you actually see Daniel talking about these. For instance, in Daniel 8, he says this about the split kingdoms. That horn was broken, and the four, and in that place, four others rose. These kingdoms arose, but not with his power. Right? They're not going to be Alexander the Great. They're going to be Seleucids the okay, and to Ptolemy the, the, the average. Uh, in 23, it says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, the Seleucids particularly, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. 
So we're saying God's doing something. By not by his, it's not him, right? It's not his good looks, right? He's not doing it. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So there's coming a time, even in this history, in this intertestamental period, although we've learned about it 200 years before in Daniel, that something's about to happen. One of these kings of the divided Greek empire is going to come and do some stuff to Jerusalem, and it's going to be bad. As a matter of fact, here's, here's what it says. By his cunning, he shall make the seat prosper, and under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. Well, do you know who of the Seleucid kingdom, without warning, went and destroyed Jerusalem? Antiochus Epiphanes, the eighth ruler of the Seleucid kingdom. If you read any intertestamental literature, you're going to find Antiochus Epiphanes because that's when you start getting to uh, the Maccabean revolt and Mattathias, the father of the Maccabeans, and, and how they you know, held their stance because they were zealous Jews and how they wanted to make sure that worship stayed in Jerusalem because what Antiochus Epiphanes did is he went, killed tons of people, 10,000, over 10,000, I believe, got deported people and then went to the temple and he sacrificed swine in the altar of the temple. This Greek king of the Seleucids who worshiped the gods of Greece and defamed the name of God. And that's why it actually says uh, in verse 8 before in the, the first prophecy that I was telling you about that he shall come up against the prince of princes. Well, who's the prince of prince? God. God's the prince of princes. We see that throughout all of scripture. The prince of princes is God. And it says, and he shall come up against the prince of princes. And he did. He went to the temple and he sacrificed swine. You know why he did it? Because what is the one thing you do not sacrifice on the temple of God? Swine. So you see what I'm saying? Scripture is very clear. Even hundreds of years before this ever even took place, God said, Alexander the Great's coming. He's going to do a lot of great things. Going to be a big goat, greatest of all time. I mean, Jesus literally, or God literally came up with the term goat, greatest of all time. And his name is Alexander the Great. Like, we didn't come up with that. All right, God did that. All right, and he was describing someone who was going to come. And he's saying, listen, predictive prophecy. I'm telling you the future before it ever even gets here. And you need to trust that I am being truthful and faithful because I'm a truthful and faithful God. And what you need to know is I mean what I say, and I say what I mean, and I say it for your good. Come on. And really, I put it this way. The Bible's accuracy should do this. It should remove any doubt about the truthfulness of Scripture. That's point number two on your outline. I want you to jot that down on your outline. Point number two. You need to remove any doubt about the truthfulness of Scripture. You know, I didn't sit up here and try to untangle a confusing web of truth here. Right? I mean, I, I didn't. I mean, believe me, I couldn't do it if it was super confusing. Right? That's pretty straightforward. We're using prophetic imagery to tell you exactly what's about to happen in the coming days, even 200 years in the future. And God is calling out a king who didn't exist, Alexander the Great, who is well attested in history, and tells exactly what happens to Alexander the Great and how that will impact the people of God. You don't just get to that. You don't just, you don't just accidentally say, well, you know, I think it's going to be pretty warm next spring. Yeah, yeah, I believe it probably will be in Texas you know, here in New Braunfels. I think it's going to get chilly in these, you think, right? I mean, that, that's, that's not predictive prophecy. That's common sense. Predictive prophecy is something that you can't make happen unless God says that's going to happen. And that's why we see it so many times in Scripture that we even have history attesting to the exact specifications of the prophecy of Daniel 8. And we should be able to say, All right, I, no doubt, Scripture's true. No doubt the predictive prophecies of Scripture tell us exactly what's, what's going on. But there's a reason why you don't believe and trust in Scripture, isn't it? 
There's a reason that oftentimes you question Scripture, and it's because you're not familiar with it. I question a lot of things I'm not familiar with. Right? I do. Chinese food all the time. Question it consistently. I go to a Chinese buffet. Don't know what that is. Highly questionable. I'm quite questionable because I'm not familiar with it. Right? As a matter of fact, that's why you go on dates before you get engaged and married, isn't it? Because you have questions. You're unfamiliar with the situation. You're not just going to get into a covenant marriage with somebody you don't know. It's the same reason why you interview before you get a job. No one walks in and says, whatever it is, just give it to me. I'll take it. you got to work eight days a week. Sign me up. Not even eight days. I'll do it. You're not going to do it because that's why you go to an interview process. That's why you study for a test, isn't it? Because if you get in front of a test that you have not been familiar with and you're not familiar with the content, you're going to get into the middle of it and you're going to fail. You have to be familiar with the content if you're going to trust in what it's doing and what it's saying and have confidence to walk in it. And in the same way, it works exactly the same way with the Bible. When we look at these prophecies and you're like, I don't know, a goat, a ram, horns breaking, goats, flying goats. It's like, uh, I'll save that for later. No, get familiar with God's word. Study it. Look at it. Find good commentaries. Find good Bible dictionaries. Find great churches who preach the whole Bible and say, what does this mean? We need to find out what this means because it means something. God didn't say something that didn't matter. God didn't waste time in Scripture to say things that don't apply to you today. And so we got to look at the Bible and we got to say, I'm going to remove any doubt of the truthfulness of Scripture so that whatever it says, I'm going to let it illuminate God's will for me and I'm going to live in it. Amen? Okay, we had a bigger amen when we talked about voting earlier. And that is another problem, isn't it? Some of us know more about voting than we do about God. Mm, talk about that later, too. You've got to acquaint yourself with the Bible so you can remove any doubt about the truthfulness of Scripture. Grow familiar with it. You need good resources. And you need to write this down. Right? You need a good Bible. Right? And what I mean by good Bible, I'm not here trying to have a Bible debate with you. you can, we can probably do it. Let's go. We can do it later. But right now we're not. We're just going to have a good Bible. What does a good Bible consist of? A Bible that's going to align as closely with the original language as possible and preferably one that your pastor is also using. So when he's preaching, you can follow along with him as well. We use the English Standard Version. Okay, this is a great opportunity for you to go to our bookstore, buy an English Standard Version Bible. Why? Because we have the same words in front of us. Oh, what do you mean? The Bible says what the Bible says. Yes, it is. Okay, great. We can get into that conversation later. Okay, but there's a reason why we don't use certain translations in this church, and we just want you to make sure you have the best tools and partnered with our church to learn God's word. Go get an ESV. If you're one of those people like, Pastor, I've had this book for 30 years. Listen, they're, they're both Bibles. Just go get one. You can keep it. I didn't tell you to throw it away. I didn't tell you to burn it. Okay, keep it. Just get an ESV. Okay. You need a good Bible dictionary. Okay. A Bible dictionary doesn't work like Webster's dictionary. It's more like a Bible encyclopedia. Right? You have these questions about who is Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, here's who he was. And it'll say, and it ties back to the four horns that came out of Daniel 8. And you're like, oh, a good Bible dictionary is going to help you understand things that you can't just get as you're reading scripture because you don't understand apocalyptic literature. You don't understand the Old Testament theology. You don't understand the meta-narrative of scripture. So you look and you say, what, what is the meta-narrative? I'm looking at the meta-narrative of scripture. It teaches you how to understand God's word. And you need a good one to two volume commentary. I'm not asking you to go buy you know, the, the word commentary or the biblical word commentary. I'm not asking you to go buy thousands of dollars worth of commentaries. I'm saying, go get you a good one to two volume commentary where you can flip to and you can say, I don't know what this word means, but I don't know what this text means, but here's a good commentary that I can trust that gives me a little overview. 
And on that note, you need a good study Bible because a study Bible is less than a commentary. You get you those resources. There's you a good library. Start there. Because you need to remove any doubt about the truthfulness of Scripture. And undoubtedly, people who kind of know a little bit about the Word can come to you and object about something. And then you're like, what? I don't know anything about that. Right? And it's going gonna, it's gonna to do what? It's going to discourage your faith, isn't it? It's going to hinder your growth because you're like, well, I didn't. I don't, and I don't have any resources to help me understand what they're saying. I have Google, which don't Google, don't Google things. You know how that works. Right? You Google things about church history, and you Google things about theology, you're going to get a whole bunch of answers. I feel like I'm a parent on a pedestal right now, but get you some good resources. You need some good resources? We're going to talk about it in our podcast today for this sermon. We'll give you guys on our podcast some good resources you guys can use. All right. Because it's important that you trust Scripture. Because if you don't trust Scripture, and I'm not giving you an excuse. Well, if you don't trust Scripture, I guess you don't have to live for the Lord. No, no, no. no. If you don't trust Scripture, you don't live for the Lord, you're going to be held accountable for that. So that's on you. But I'm saying as you want to live for the Lord, there's a way to do it. And you have to look at Scripture and say, this is trustworthy. The veracity of Scripture is well attested. I know it's true and I know it's right. And you can look at things, even like predictive prophecy that isn't even fulfilled yet. And instead of looking at it with skepticism, which people do, Believe it or not, you believe that? People look at the future eschatological predictive prophecies with a skepticism, but yet you and I as a Christian well, don't look at them as skeptics, but we look at it with excitement, saying, can you believe what's about to happen? Can you believe what's coming down that pipeline? The same way that Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and those in the, the line of David were able to do, we can do as well. As a matter of fact, we must. Because if you read the chapter before in Daniel 7, it actually prophesies about a future event, which often apocalyptic literature does. It switches from a future, future event to a semi-future event to a present event. Um, you can flip to Daniel 7. I need you to follow along with something there. Daniel 7, something really important for us, because we have to understand our own future and the history about what God has said about our future so we can live for today and tomorrow with great confidence. Isn't that what you want to do? Don't you want to live today and tomorrow with great faith and confidence that God is faithful and that you are, as a faithful steward of the graces of God and as a servant of God, living, understanding the truth about God? Who wants to do that? Anybody? All right, we're going to do it right now. Okay, Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 9. Here, here's what happened. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his place. Well, the... We're Christians. There's only one ancient of days. There's only someone who's been here before the days existed, and that is God. So we see God took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. It sounds a lot like God, doesn't it? That's definitely God. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand ten thousand stood before him. There's a good crowd here. And the court sat in judgment. All right, so we understand there's a time the court is going to sit in judgment. God is going to be on his throne. And there's going to be thousands and thousands and thousands and innumerable people before him. And as I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, the horn was speaking, the power right, was speaking. As I looked, the beast was killed. Uh, and then skip to verse, let's skip to verse 13. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Hmm. Do you know what Jesus' number one title for himself was in the Gospels? Son of Man. 
people called him all sorts of things. His number one name for himself was not Jesus, was not Christ. It was Son of Man. That was his number one title for himself in the Gospels. And here we see it, Jesus talking about himself, and we see it in Daniel saying, And there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What did that sound like to you? The Davidic covenant, didn't it? That was literally the fulfiller of the Davidic covenant, which proves you and I, because isn't that what the Davidic covenant says? I'm going to give you a kingdom, verse 14, and people are going to serve you. The nations will serve you, and your dominion will be an everlasting dominion heir of David, it will never pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So why are we in Daniel when we're talking about the line of Christ in Matthew? Because there's the Davidic promise saying it's an eschatological future hope that you and I get to trust into, that there is a time coming where the throne will be filled, and it will be filled with the Son of Man who will be presented before the Ancient of Days. And you're like, okay, well, that's the Old Testament. Prove me to that in the New Testament. I will. Flip to Revelation. Flip to Revelation. Let's see, Revelation chapter 5. It's the last book in your Bible, by the way. Pretty, pretty quick to get there. Revelation 5. What I want you to pay attention to is the parallelism here. That, that John, the revelator, took his understanding as he's been given the prophecy from the angel. And he has, this is so parallel to what the angel was saying to Daniel. Here's what he says. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on a throne a scroll within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep because of it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is the only lion that can sit on the throne of God? The tribe of Judah, the root of David. Right? We're already seeing the Davidic covenant in its fulfillment, in its culmination here in Revelation 5. And between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, or according to Daniel 8, the Son of Man presented before God. And I saw the Lamb standing as though he had been slain, the crucified Christ. And seven horns with seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And, when he, and, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the Ancient of Days, he who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom. There it is again. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Amen? Like, listen, that guys, this is the culmination of this entire sermon series. The reason that we spent the last seven weeks talking about names is because that name leads to the king of kings, the name that is above all names. And that's, we have to understand the predictive prophecy of the Bible. Because if you are like so many and you're saying, I just, I don't really deal with prophets. I don't really deal with revelation. Just give me Matthew through Jude, first, second, third John and Jude. Give me those. I'll, I'll do those. But you can't because all of the writers of the scriptures was, 
was pointing to predictive prophecy for the reason and the rationale of why they lived the way they lived. That's the only reason you would live the way you live, if you trusted in the predictive prophecy of Scripture. And that's the reason why Matthew spends so much time talking about this name and this name and this name. Because every single time they were pointing, this led to this because this is coming. This person led to this person because this is coming. This all led to Christ because he has come and he has died and he has been raised. And he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he's coming back to reign on the throne of his father, David, period. And that's why Jesus... Right, knowing this, right, knowing his position as the, the heir to the Davidic throne, he, he understood this. He spent his earthly ministry calling people to spend their lives living for the kingdom of God over and over again. Don't seek the treasure here. Store it in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and thief can't come in to steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And in Matthew, the end of Matthew 6, don't Seek after these things. The nations seek after these things, according to Luke. According to Matthew, the Gentiles seek after these things. And God knows you need them, but you, you seek first the kingdom of God. Or the kingdom. Right? You have to, you can't be an ethereal idea of this metaphorical kingdom. There's a real kingdom coming. We just saw it in predictive prophecy throughout this whole sermon. And he says, that's what you live for. Don't seek after those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'm going to take care of your other needs. But what you need to be focusing on is the coming kingdom today, here, and now. That's point number three on your outline. You need to do this. You need to focus your efforts on living for Christ's coming kingdom. Focus your efforts on living for Christ's coming kingdom. And that's what I love about the life of Christ is he didn't just say, forget everything that's going on right now. Something real big's happening. All right, pack your bags. Don't, don't worry about it. You got supper on the stove, leave it. Uh, you got kids, nah, they're not going to age out of this anyway, okay? They're, just leave them all alone. There's coming a time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all this different. He didn't. He gave you directions about how to take care of your home. He gave you directions about what you do with your children. He gave you directions about how to live in your marriage in a way that honors the Lord. He gave you directions about how you go to work, about how you are to be generous, generous and sacrificially giving to people and to God's church and to one another. Like he, he taught you how to focus your efforts today living for Christ's coming kingdom. Because he says, he says this in Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I love this. He didn't say, I'm coming soon. Pack your bags and sit and wait for me to get there. He said, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Right? There is a responsibility for you and I to look at predictive prophecy, to look at the promises of God and keep them and live by them. Isn't that convicting? Right? We don't just sit here and say, yeah, I'm saved. I'm, gonna, I'm, just waiting on, I'm just waiting on Jesus. It's like, no, no, no. Blessed is the one who keeps these, who trusts in these, who walks in these. Blessed is him that when I show up, he will stand before me not ashamed but prepared and ready. You see, names, they're significant. Names evoke emotion, right? Names evoke to us historical facts. Uh, names can also spark controversy. One of the most controversial figures that ever lived is named Jesus. But my hope and my prayer is that this series of the lists of names in Scripture helped you never to overlook a genealogy in the Bible. 
that help you to never just think that there's things in the Bible that don't mean anything to you. Because every one of those names and every one of those verses and every one of those chapters and every one of those genres and every one of those books and every one bit of the Old Testament, every bit of the New Testament should center your attention on the complete faithfulness of God and his promise-keeping character in all of history, whether it was past, present, or future. Let's pray. God, my, my prayer, my, my great prayer is that this sermon did not fall on deaf ears, that it's so clear in your scripture that you are so honest and truthful, that your word declares faithfully everything that we need to know for life and for godliness. And as we prepare and await for you, as you're coming, nears. And I just pray, God, that you would help us uh, focus on living for today when it comes to your kingdom, that there is real, tangible practical ways for us to live right now. God, but we have to understand your word. We have to be familiar with it. And I just pray that we would. I pray that we'd be a church that's committed to your word, that's committed to communing with you in prayer, even as I think tonight as we're about to have a church-wide prayer meeting, the fact that we prioritize the gathering of believers on Sunday. We prioritize the corporate prayer of the saints, God. Even as we read in Revelations that uh, the prayers of the saints are an incense in heaven, uh, God, and we add to the worship in the heavenly place, God. And just we just thank you to even that we get the privilege to be a part of that. And I pray that we would not shirk our privilege, that we would not shirk and that we not push away our birthright as Christians to be a part of these things. And I just pray that it would not be anyone's ignorance, God, that they would not be a part of those things simply because they don't know you simply because they don't know your word and simply because they don't know what it means to walk in your promises. I pray that we'd be a church walking in the promises of God. Help us with that now. Even as we close in worship to you, God, I pray that we would sing. I pray that we would be eagerly awaiting your return. And I pray that even as we await, God, we would look at our lives as examples of how we should be waiting for you and your return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.